I don't consider myself an expert in education anyway. I don't, I definitely don't think that I have satisfying answers for education um, at large. And I think like, I don't say that out of, you know, fake humility or even real humility. I just mean like, I think when you're genuinely interested in a topic and you spent time in it, which I have, um, I'm more, I guess, like interested in what the exploration of that looks like, right? It's like such a, it's obviously such a big, complicated mess of a of an idea um you know i stay away from like having a strong firm opinion or viewpoint on education related matters because it seems almost silly or absurd to have that uh when when so much needs to be tested understood explored yeah and you know the way that you were describing it how there's no real like satisfying answers or like you haven't you know, felt any satisfying answers or that you don't have them. Like that's literally, I don't know, theme number one of my <laughs> podcast is we're like all of these issues, like we keep saying it just like, it's just complicated. There's no, there's no real answer. We don't have the answer. It's just, it's too complicated. Um, and that's why we just want to, you know, look at things from different angles and, um, and see how we can better engage more thoughtfully. This is Song. And this is Sarah. And this is Effing Ethical, where we try to make sense of all of the choices facing consumers every day. Um, All right. So we're back. And Song and I found somebody to talk to that doesn't have the exact same thoughts or tone or approach to life as the two of us. (laughs) I feel like I'm already being Love you, Angar. (laughs) No, this is, we just like, we want to hear another voice. Welcome, Ongar. Would you like to tell us like the, the elevator pitch? Who, who are you? How do we know you? Um, yeah, so uh, this is to imagine if I was stuck in an elevator with both of you guys. And then I have to <laughs> um, a lifetime, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I just graduated with you guys, obviously, from uh, the School of Management. Um, I've spent the last eight years before business school in education in a few different roles in a few different uh, environments and um, have kind of taken the intentional decision to go to, to business school to, to, you know, I think it's a pretty similar narrative that most people who are switching from some kind of industry or past experience have, which is gain a new perspective, gain some new skills and then think about, you know, what do I want to do long-term? Uh, that is still a big TBD as I imagine for most of my, my classmates and friends, it, it is as well for the long-term. Um, what, like, why did you work in education? What was it that made you interested in kind of taking that career path originally? In college, I was very geared towards, uh, I majored in, in English and political science, mostly focusing on political theory. So I was your very typical, like theoretical social justice warrior in my mind, right? Um, <laughs> I think like all of us have some kind of like, I read this philosophy book or this like lit novel and I was just like, man, I really want to focus on this stuff. So education kind of popped up almost randomly to me. I think um, I met someone on my campus about Teach for America, uh, at first, I kind of like was very skeptical of it. I mean, to be fair, I'm skeptical of like everything at first and even later. Uh, and I was like, I don't know if I really want to do this. Uh, I was kind of 
I was kind of set on thinking about like going to law school or, or getting, you know, going back to get a master's in some kind of like uh, useless philosophy or political theory. Um, but I thought, you know, this might be, this might be a good way to actually engage in, in some of these ideas at an actually practical level. And so uh, applied for Teacher for America. I got in, I was placed in Rhode Island and I ended up teaching three years of middle school English in a charter school in Rhode Island. Um, and then I kind of took a couple of different career paths in, in education, career twists in education. Um, yeah, I guess I got into it kind of, maybe not randomly, but uh, you know, certainly not without a little bit of fortuitous chance and then stayed because I really enjoyed the work and I felt like when you zoom out of the day to day, you know, that there was some broader mission that I cared about. Did you ever find that like education professionals, whether they were teachers or people kind of involved, were like emotionally supported in any way? Like, are there systems out there that are doing that? Did you ever interact with them? It's kind of a crazy question. I mean, that's like, you know, on a on a day to day level at any job, you have emotional support in the people you work with. But, you know, also on the flip side of that, there's there's only so much that any kind of emotional support, whether it's from another person or the, you know, the the way it's done now is, which is, I imagine you download an app and someone gives you emotional support. Um, there's a gap, right? Like you just kind of have to, to cover that lost space because you're dealing with X number of children every day and parents and communities and just every single day you wake up with a plan that then goes to shit and then you have to figure out uh, how do I mitigate the going to shit element of the plan that I just had? Am I allowed to curse on your podcast? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Got it. I mean, there's there's a curse word in the title, so I took the liberty. Oh. <laughs> I heard you guys curse, and so I found that you both. You can say whatever you want. Anger, can you talk a little bit about um, what the no excuses model is? Uh, yeah, so um, I guess zooming out a little bit, uh, charter schools are, are, for the large part, publicly funded schools that are um, managed and run without the same uh, stipulations that a lot of traditional district schools uh, have. And, the, and I think the primary one would be around hiring, retaining, or uh, recruiting for, for staff, teachers, principals, administrators, um, but a, a series of other, you know, major elements. And I'll, I'll get into the no excuses model in a second, but um, I make that distinction because I think a lot of people think that charter schools are private schools. Uh, I think there's a very, very small section of charter schools that are for profit um, or private schools, but those, you know, I, I don't think those are really um, part of the, the like the larger national conversation around the efficacy of charter schools. I think on average, you know, your typical charter school uh, I believe is probably um, no better at producing student achievement results than a traditional district public school. And I'd say that the no excuses name comes from this mentality or this, this philosophy that regardless of a child's uh, socioeconomic background, there is no excuse for giving them a quality education. That name, no excuses, tried to center around this idea that, hey, we're going to figure out a set of rules or systems to kind of counteract all of these larger social economic uh, forces that might 
impede a child's ability to learn in school? So when, whenever I think about charter schools, it, it's very connected to this idea of like parent or student choice to like have a different structure for, for their educational experience. Have you seen a different structure that is working for, for some kids or is it a different structure that maybe, maybe it wouldn't matter, right? Like maybe if you take some kids, it, they'll do well in a lot of different structures and other kids because of other external factors wouldn't do well. Like, have you seen yeah. some of those like creative structures actually like effective in kind of working for kids, whereas like traditional public schools didn't for some reason? The person who is Ongar as a human based on personal experience, <laughs> you know, believes that I have definitely seen um, a lot of students benefit in the long term from some of the structures of that chart of a of a charter school that you know the school I worked at by the way had the DNA of a, of a no excuses charter school when it started out and has morphed quite a bit and has experimented quite a bit and I think is actually a pretty interesting uh, case study in what what charter reform or charter schools could look like and should or shouldn't look like um, so I've definitely seen that on a personal level I think you know there's there's always this question there's always two questions of like what does the data say and like how do i know it's good data and what does it actually mean you know in, in at large there's a fair number of studies that track students who enter the lottery and are admitted to a charter school and the same students who also enter that lottery and do not end up at that charter school and they try to track both students and they still find that that um you know the educational achievement that they uh earn at a charter school is still significantly better um Again, I, I say that with hesitation because I think that unless you, you know, really dig into any of these papers or any of this research, then it's, I'm just giving you a very simplified, maybe potentially biased version of it, right? Um, and then on the personal level, yeah, I, I still keep in touch with a lot of my students who now I've known for, I guess, almost a decade, right? I taught them when they were middle schoolers. I worked with them when they were high schoolers, uh, when I came back to the school, and uh, many of them are now in college, and I keep in touch with some of them. So, you know... It's always interesting talking with them. Um, it, it's talk it, because they'll they'll say things like, uh, you know, wow, wow, like I really was prepared in certain ways, or wow, my school experience was so goddamn weird compared to every other normal kid who come from a school. Like when I tell them what we did at a charter school, they're like, what the hell is that? Um, and then the the big looming question is like the counterfactual. I have no idea. I have no idea how a person's life turns out if I rewind 10 years and they go to a different school. I brought this up kind of before we started recording or like when we were first talking that I've been listening to the Nice White Parents podcast. Yeah. And one of the things that I think very much fits into this, are you supposed <laughs> to make the choice that's best for your child or best for your community? And it kind of feels like if you make the decision that is best for your child, you are potentially prohibiting or slowing some of that longer systematic change that can be better for the whole community. I, I think of it as a, you know, I, I think like I just reduce it down to what is the most practical and personal way to look mm -hmm. at it, right? Like I'm a, I'm a parent of a kid and I'm not, this is a hypothetical situation. Um <laughs> Right. We, we should be like, FYI, none of us are parents. So, right. <laughs> um, no, I think it's important to, to note that too. Um, no, but you know, like how many parents actually have that issue framed that way to them? Like, look, mm. you sending your kid to this school is a, a, a part of a larger pattern 
of a type of inequality that exists, and that inequality will only exist and get worse if you at an individual level will continue doing this, and you and your neighbor does it too, and your your sister's kids do it too, and like you know your friend from business school does it too. It's like that that is not framed to people in that way, and when it is, if it is framed to the people in that way, you know you kind of have like this back to this like really nefarious philosophical collective action problem right it's almost similar to like yeah. should i matter is does it matter if i vote like wait so like really like if i don't send my kid to this better school or to this school or whatever whatever i perceive first of all to be a better school because there's so much bias in just what we perceive to be a good or bad school um right. you know uh right like it's not something that is immediately apparent to you that you are either fighting injustice or contributing to it Right. It's, it's such a removed, um, huge problem that I don't see how individual parents necessarily at large will understand that dilemma. I mean, yes, let me not say they, they won't. Let me just say that they don't now because of that. I also I mean, I also wonder, though, if it's less of a they understand the problem, they understand it problem or. That I feel like for for parents, nothing else matters more than the outcomes for your child. So even if they were to understand, I wonder if if that's enough or it'll just sound like an attack or something like that. I think that's something that I've also kind of been thinking about in business school is just how how do we communicate things and how do we change behaviors in a way where you're convincing them that what's good for everyone is is also good for you and yours, right? Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't know what that answer is, but like I, I, you know, I keep thinking about like the specialized high schools in New York City example, um, and you know, it's it's not white parents in this case, it's like Asian parents. Um, but I have friends who went to specialized high schools in New York City, and they say, and, and they're, you know, they've like interned for me at like a civil rights organization, and they're all about affirmative action and whatnot. But then as they're reflecting on sort of their own experiences and the debates around um, specialized high school, which is personal to them, and it's about their families, and it's, it's about their future children, they don't want to change the system in a way that benefits all and you know they become a little bit more protective and I I, I don't I'm not a child I'm not a parent so I don't know how how I will feel as a parent um, and I don't know if it'll be different from the way that I feel now but I wonder if there is a way of like framing it in a different way um, yeah I, I don't know yeah I would I would um, the only thing I can offer is that uh, maybe just read everything by Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, who has done extensive uh, work on this on this topic. And I think she has, uh, I think there was an article that she wrote titled Choosing a School for My Daughter in a Segregated District or something. Um, can't remember the exact title, but she touches on this. Um, I mean, I, I think like just, she speaks about it just way better than I could, or than we can kind of speculate here. Um, I do think that this is also, you know, um, kind of the, an interesting parallel to this has always been, what does education actually mean in this country? Um, 
you know, we kind of have this presumption that education is some kind of great equalizer that that uh, a particular school or a particular curriculum or a particular teacher will impart an objective set of knowledge, skills, and uh, heuristics for thinking that will make someone better. And as as long as you can just get those things to a kid, they will be successful. Um, and I think like our what we're seeing in higher education in the last decade and more has kind of totally blown that up, right? Um, you have so many students who have been pushed to go to college and, and you understand why they didn't push to go to college, right? There's so much data that shows that on average, again, that uh, a college degree earns you X many more dollars than, than not having one. You have so many students who are pushed into colleges that don't actually have a financial justification or benefit for the time and money they're putting in. Let's say we get every single child to college, right? Does that work, right? Is every one of those college degrees and journeys going to lead to, you know, not just a, a, a livable and respectable income, but uh, some kind of occupation that makes you happy and, and fulfilled? I, I don't think in the current system it seems like that, right? I don't think every... And, and that's not to say that I'm giving a... Um, an opinion on should every child go to college or not. I think that the college focus that a lot of schools have is intentional and deliberate and more nuanced than we give it credit for. I think there's a lot of smart people who understand how how deeply complicated this college problem is um, and still make certain decisions because of that complication. If, if we return back to that original question, right, what do, you, what do you do with a student when you think about like this podcast, Nice White Parents? I guess like it kind of just comes down to this fundamental question of what do you have to give up for a more fair system. And I think we are inherently all as human beings uh, primed to see the least amount of thing that we have to give up, right? If, if, and this is where any kind of philanthropic endeavor comes back, if it makes you feel good, if it makes you feel like some, some kind of impact is happening, then maybe I am a good person. Maybe I am helping justice. Um, Oh, and on the flip side, I'm not saying that that's a total lie. I'm not saying that that is just a, a deception that we pull over ourselves, but it's just something that has become, it's slowly becoming more part of, I guess, our conversation around um, how to be like good people, which I think is kind of the, it might be the zeitgeist of our, of our generation. Uh, <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we want to be good people without giving anything up and having trophies for how good we were. Oh my God, the trophies, Jesus, trophies. Oh my God, we love trophies. <laughs> um, man, I, I really appreciate the just sort of thinking about, I guess that I would say like a part of what you just said was that like the education system is certainly holding too much. It's like holding too much of our expectations it's holding too much kind of value that it is supposed to give to anyone that, that goes through it. Um, and, and I guess I wonder, like, is that like, okay, we're, we're sitting here in the U S um, song is, is in Korea, but went, you know, went to school in the U S we're talking about like the U S education system specifically. Is this just a symptom of our individualism? That's like, like it, it's unavoidable. Like we are individualistic Americans. So do you think that that's just like a symptom and it's always going to be that way? Or are there, are there things that are changing, right? Like is, um, 
are are there like I don't know I don't know if there's an answer but do you think that there's anything that can change this like is there any way that we can create more equitable systems especially within education in spite of our selfish behaviors um yeah yeah that's a hard question I, I don't know, so I want to back up a little bit right like I don't know I don't think like I am convinced there is a clear answer that selfishness is this thing and then selfishness is clearly the problem with education right um you know i i guess and, and i guess a separate question is like is this what inherent selfishness that has breeded this or created the system or has the system that we live in kind of forced selfishness as a as a way to kind of like survive right um or not survive or just kind of survive and thrive um so i guess i kind of question whether what what is like is it you know, are we saying that selfishness is that I'm not sending my kid to this school instead, or I'm not, because I, I could, I could, that argument could reduce itself to like, there are a, probably a thousand things that I am not doing, or you are not doing, or any one of us is not doing, that if we looked at, you know, how it contributes to a larger system that we should be doing, right? That's not, a, that's not a reason to say that we shouldn't dramatically change our lives. I'm just saying this argument just doesn't just end with like selfishness and education is not just a primarily singular thing that I could look at. Um, I don't, I don't know what, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't even tell, I couldn't, um, like summarize the culture or the educational system in of many other countries. I did work a lot in Kenya, very different, very, very different country, but I think there's a lot of similarities, right? I think there's like a lot of similarities in like any kind of country that has generally, um, accelerated in its capitalistic growth. And I don't mean that I'm not trying to start a conversation around like is capitalism good or bad like not at all it's just like it's generally a byproduct right like you have um you know you probably have like advancement innovation employment grow in certain industries and not in others you as a natural response have to figure out how do i sift through opportunity how do i reward how do i match opportunity with merit that is something that every single country deals with um is America more individualistic than other countries? Probably, it seems like our natural, like our narrative is around that. Um, I think in a contradictory way that Americans also see themselves as very generous and, and giving and, and um, you know, global in many ways too. Um, I would say like, let me just quickly comment on, because right now I'm just kind of speculating in the, in the wind. Uh, let me just quickly talk about the Kenyan education system. You know, so I worked um, for a company that ran schools in Kenya and many other developing countries. I think we can get into that later. That's a whole different can of worms around educational opportunity. And Sarah, you and I can fight about that um, <laughs> for the viewer's pleasure uh, or the listener's pleasure. Um, but you know, the, the system in, in Kenya, and I think it's somewhat probably similar in India, you have a series of national exams that uh, kind of more or less determine whether you go on to the next level of education. So like if at eighth grade, I do really well on this exam, I I can then qualify to go to high school. If I go do really well on that next exam, I can qualify to go to college. To no one's surprise, if you are wealthy and um, you know, you're from the middle or upper class, well, mostly the upper class, then you're doing better on these exams. You are going to these schools, you're studying abroad. And there's a vast, 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 vast group of people who um, live in just abject poverty, who have schools available to them that are either not preparing them. And you know, there are a million factors outside of education from um, health and employment that affect how a child does in school. 
And so, you know, we worked really hard to say like, look, what if we standard, what if we bring some of these best practices, right? Like a, a song kind of theorized before, like, what if we take some of these best practices around good curriculum design, good teacher management, good classroom management, and we, and we ran it at scale at, um, for a lot of students in, in Kenya, right? And, and then in Liberia and Nigeria and wherever else. And you get, and you, and you get, you know, what you would expect, which is when some of these experimented and tested academic practices bring students a lot of academic success. And, you know, maybe it's not enough academic success to cover up what has been lost over years. And so maybe it takes more years to make up for that. But also, you know, I always wondered, well, what if every student does really well on this exam? at eighth grade, every, you know, largely pretty much every student hits like the passing mark and then does a little bit better than that. Are there, are there enough high schools of good caliber that will take all those students, right? I guess my, my big question around this is like, it just seems like so much of this is filtering out, you know, how do I take a certain group of people or how do I, how do I make sure that I can control for the number of, of spots that I have, a number of qualified good spots I have, because there's only so many of them. Right. Um, and so if I get every kid to do well on this exam and they can't all go to high school and have a job, then they just create another exam that then, you know, half of them fail. Or do they create a new, um, you know, a, a language test or a, a, an employment, uh, you know, like an internship requirement or something. Right. And then, again, all the kids who did well on the test, like that doesn't matter anymore because we still have to filter you out in some ways. Um, so I guess my, you know, I guess my question is like, we, we, we need to first, oh man, I can't believe I said we need to, again, cringe. Um, <laughs> who am I over here throwing mandates out? Uh, I, I do think that um, education cannot, it does not, it is not like the great equalizer in this like heroic sense that um, we may always look at it as, right? It can be a great equalizer. It is, it is vitally important, but um, in so many in so many cases, like you know, fighting over one narrow education policy that is disconnected from a broader effort, that is disconnected from healthcare, that is disconnected from employment, that is dis disconnected from racial discrimination, like all those kinds of things, if they are disconnected, then those systems I feel like will just kind of evolve, right? Just in the ways that progress evolves, I think like impediments to progress will also evolve and just kind of stop. Um, or act as a counterbalance. Um, I had never thought about the kind of like the the testing and access to higher levels of education in that way. But based on some of the other um, work that I've done um, in international development and kind of looking at different markets, there's so many countries where, yes, there's huge unemployment, um, even when incorporating kind of the informal market. But some of the biggest problems is underemployment, right? When you get all of these high school or college graduates who the, the system was big enough to have enough numbers in, um, in those places, but then there's no jobs, right? And like what type of societal impact is there in having a bunch of 22 to 25-year-olds running around who were sold that if you go through this system, you will get employment and you will, you know, create a better life for yourself or you will, you know, get some sort of accolades and not having those opportunities. It does sort of 
speak to some like bigger societal questions. And yeah, I guess I had never thought about not that it's designed, but that by kind of allowing the 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 capitalist the capitalistic systems to do what they do, there are some consequences of those, which means like you just you want less high school graduates if you have less jobs, like for example. Um, and I think that your point of connecting why our education systems are the way they are to those broader systems is is really important. Um, I think that any gosh any choice that we make, whether it's um, from a an individual making some sort of consumption purchase or decision, or we're looking for policy choices, we do really like things kind of defined and in their buckets. But like we can't just fix the education system without looking at every other system because then we, yeah, it's it's just impossible. It's really a is our system acting in a way to uphold the values of our society? Maybe it is. Maybe that's part of the the problems that are in it. Those are just representative of of the society. Yeah, and what one uh, one other quick note there, like flip side of filtering people out of opportunities in college you get the flip side of that is you can have just a proliferation of bad colleges right like this huge college push Mm -hmm. in 30 years there are so many bad colleges there are so many bad colleges that you end up spending 30 grand a year for and you know the academic quality of that college the the administrative quality of that college the connections it has to employment are just so poor so it's like you know we there's just like this surface level like oh we got to get kids to college let's get some more colleges now we have a bunch of kids in college that college degree means nothing right and so now certain college degrees those those selective colleges they're just even more buttressed in their in their reputation and you have a bunch of kids kind of making life life altering bad financial decisions and it's not their fault and it's not their family's fault either right i think we we kind of struggle i struggle with this a lot in terms of like how do you help a kid decide you know how do you how do you go to college which college to go to what do you do with what do you do with like you know if you're if you come into a high school you have not gotten the greatest literacy or numeracy education for the last eight years you're a junior in high school and you're thinking man like I don't know if I'm ready for college level courses, right? Mm. And if you say, um, you know, oh no, I don't know if you're ready. You are literally telling one group of students continually, you are not ready for this other opportunity in your life. Or you push a kid to go to like a, you know, to, to a college and that, that may not have um, academic supports or emotional supports, right? I think there's there's been like a, a bit of a conversation around like what are colleges doing to support students now, especially first generation students to college. Um, some some colleges are doing a much better job than others. It's usually the colleges with more resources. Some big state schools are doing a reasonably good job relative to what's going on in terms of supporting first generation students or students who, um, you know, separate from first generation students, students who may have like some kind of need additional academic tutoring, but a vast majority of them do not, right? Um, and we also have this mindset that you know, college means adult, college means self-sufficient, college means you go, you get the degree, and you kind of like walk out triumphantly. Yeah, I mean, to both of your points about whether, I mean, the way, I guess, our ideas around education and 
after this baseline that like college is the goal and the answer and kind of, you know, to again, to both of your points about how, um, yeah, like what happens when you graduate from college and you don't have a job. So like in Korea, I mean, Korea is one of the most highly educated countries in the world. Um, like they're, I think it's something like 99% of, um, yeah, 99% kind of like have a high, uh, high school education and I don't remember the exact numbers, but like 70% or something like that have a college education and there's massive unemployment. And so I, yeah, and I, I wonder, you know, if rather than, rather than college and just like education um, in these kind of like easily digestible buckets of like, yeah, you have to go to college or, you know, whatever it is, um, are there alternatives? So I think there's been um, like sort of attention on um, like community colleges or, you know, trade schools or, um, you know, apprenticeships or, you know, whatever it is. I don't, I don't know if it's like realistic or that that would solve anything, um, but I don't know. Have you ever like thought about what an alternative kind of like at a systemic level, what an alternative to the current kind of bastions of, um, of education are supposed to be? Um, yeah, I think uh, two points. One is uh, first, like there, there, there have been, um, you know, a proliferation of, I'd say, trade schools, vocational schools and other like alternative degree pathway programs. Um, and I think that right now it's in a state of, it's very hit or miss. Some of those are great. Some of those are terrible. Um, there are some people who are thinking about how do I make, how do I think about a, how, how can we like get rid of this almost absurd accreditation program that colleges run and, and just distill like the skills that you need for a much lower tuition cost. And maybe that's done online through and maybe that's done in partnership with like internships and employment opportunities right um there's a lot of people who are thinking about that various nonprofits, very like like some charter school some former charter school leaders or, or people who've worked in that have kind of come up with uh programs to work with um college-age students so i think there is hope in that um you know particularly this idea that wait we really think every kid should go spend, you know, thirty to sixty thousand dollars a year for four years to major in political science and English literature, because that's going to be, you know, that's going to be the, that's the best use of every kid's money. Um, and I, I picked those majors because obviously uh, I was an idealist back in the day when I was much younger. Um, but for, for <laughs> and you've changed so much. No ideals anymore. <laughs> exactly. No, but for like everyone who, you know, and I'm not saying that we get rid of like the intellectual exploration that we love from college, but like we have to remember that our singular experience is not um, the beacon for which an educational system for millions of people should be based on necessarily, or it should be fixed to rather. Um, and then this, the second part song is I actually don't, I've honestly have started think business school, let me not say business school, I'd say like just like the last couple of years, I think I have... Um, kind of fallen in out of love with systematic solutions and systems. Um, I, I think that it's just too close to the word scale. And I think for some things, scale is great 
I think that um, I am personally interested in what uh, the opposite of scale can provide for for individual like districts or cities or you know even like neighborhoods or communities within a city. I do really appreciate. It. I think as someone who has worked internationally, lived in Washington D.C., like thought about things on a really global scale, I am someone who thinks about scale a lot and has been you know, even disappointed in my own choices in not kind of connecting my broader beliefs and and choices to like some really local uh, community action things that I might be able to do. Um, So I I guess the question is, you know, if, if, if listeners or if you're sort of telling yourself or, or anyone who 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 thinks that you know they would like to be part of educational systems working better like like where do you look um is there if you were if you wanted to 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 change or help you know your local school districts like how how would you even start doing that like where would you look to sort of start making these small local changes damn you just opened up another can of worms um, um, and I would like you to give me a one-line answer. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think my my first, I don't know, what I follow is don't believe anything. Uh, don't, do not, like, if you, if you care about the issue of education, if you care about any issue, do not go for what, you know, um, like, make sure your beliefs are formed after, like, long, long uh, agonizing deliberation, you know, um, I think that education is especially something that is so, so, so simplified and politicized. Quick example, so many people have an idea of a charter school, have no idea what a charter school is, can definitely give you one. And it's so easy to look up a Wikipedia article on what it is. And I'm not saying like, you know, that doing research on charter schools is the way I'm just giving that as an example of like, you know, when you care about that issue, like research every one of those terms, think about, um, Think about who is a proponent and an opponent of, of those and read both of those well-written articles and data if you can. Um, on a practical level of like, what else can you do other than stay informed at a very skeptical and hopefully, you know, thorough way? Um, I guess I can give you some things like maybe not to do is necessarily, you know, I see a lot of people, <laughs> I, I see a lot of people that like go into like mentoring programs, for example, and I don't really know like mentoring or tutoring programs. And I don't, I don't think that at large, those things are bad. I just think that sometimes just check what, what you're going into that for. Like, don't try to, mm. you know, don't, don't try to like step into some student's life and because it, it feels like you have a calling to, to make someone something better for them and then bounce in like a month, two months, a year or something. Right. Like, um, and, and that's not to say that you can't provide some valuable support for, for short term in the short term for students, but just think carefully about like who who does this serve, right? Is it and of course things are going to serve you and they're going to serve other people, but how is it serving different people? Are you doing it in a way that is actually thoughtful? Um, that that just that doesn't just encompass mentoring and tutoring, but any kind of in- involvement you might have in education. Um, I would say that you know it's it's apart from staying informed in, in that way and and avoiding. Um, you know, unconsciously selfish acts. I think that there is a special uh, uh, reflective period that many people who have been part of education, whether they've been teachers or administrators in some way, will 
will have in the next five to 10 years. And, you know, that I'm really interested to see what that's going to look like. I think a lot of people will feel like, man, should I go back into a classroom? I feel like, or should I go and work at a, at a, at a, you know, nonprofit, or should I go into a district school and, and run for superintendent or something? I think for all of those people who can have some way been touched with education, I think when that um, reflective moment comes to not dismiss it in light of other professional, um, you know, uh, priorities that may, that may emerge. So again, a very unsatisfying answer. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't know. I love that answer because I think that the types of things we talk about, we do get specifically requested, like, you know, well, what do I do? Right. Like we haven't even talked about like, clo- like, I don't know, buying clothing as an example, because it is so complicated and, and I don't have an answer for anybody about like what their choices, you know, what the best choices are or whatever. But I, I like the answer of like, well, like don't do anything until you've learned a lot about what it is you're interested in and can, can, can form opinions and kind of understand um, the, the situation from a lot of sides. And then maybe just by doing all of that, you know, research, reflection, um, maybe you'll see an opportunity, you know, that really fits for you to act, um, especially locally. I think that the, the idea that we like pause and think and reflect and like consider that both sides of every issue, especially, you know, all these issues we've talked about probably have like really good reasons, whether you agree with them or not, is, is a really important start. And one last bit that I think you might actually can end up cutting. Um, <laughs> um, I, I don't know what it means to be like interested in helping education or interested in education. The word interested just seems like not the verb that we use for something like that. Like I'm interested in, you know, um, like video game design or something that that's like <laughs> interest. But I think what we're saying when we say something like, Hey, if I'm interested in education, I want to help. It means like, I think what it means is like, Hey, I, I think I get why education is important and I feel kind of bad that it's like screwed up. And I'm wondering if there's a quick way that I can kind of like help with that. Cause I'm interested in it. Right. And I, I just don't think that that's the way it works. I think that there are people like, if you want to, if you want to be, if you want to help something, you have to be in that, you have to be in that work, right? In the next few years of my professional career, I'm not going into that work. I don't consider myself an educator anymore. I don't consider myself someone who is learned or wise about it or someone who's making an impact about it. If I go back into it and I'm doing something at that point, I can say like, yeah, I'm back in the game. But I think like, you know, if you're not really working on that issue, I don't think that there is a level of like, well, I'm interested and I want to just kind of help out. I think that's mostly just kind of like this, um, you know, that self pat on the back of like, well, I, I understand this is important and I'd like to, I'd like someone to tell me what the easy solution to, to throw a couple of dollars or do a tutoring session might be. I hear what you're saying. And I think from the level that you've been in, that you've been engaged and, and invested, um, I think, I think that you're right to a certain extent. I think the way that I think about it is like, what is a system's natural stakeholders and should that be all of their stakeholders, right? So like, is the education system's only stakeholders, teachers, principals, superintendents, kind of everybody within that side of the system, the students and the parents of students that are going into it? Um, I mean, it might be, right? 
But is it also important for me as, I don't know, a small business owner in town um, who doesn't have kids to be a stakeholder who's invested in like the success of the education system in my area? Um, I I think that it can be important to think of yourself as a stakeholder. Like I went through the public education system all the way up until getting my MBA. And I don't necessarily think of myself anymore as a stakeholder of the public education system, but maybe, maybe I should, right? Maybe I shouldn't wait until I have kids in the system to finally say like, okay, I should care about this now. I guess that that's kind of where I'm coming at it from is not, whew, um, is not that there's like something, something that I should be doing, right? That's uh, oh, now I feel good because I, I helped out, but more like, do I consider myself a stakeholder of this system? Because I probably am in some way, but how seriously do I take that? Do I take that responsibility, I guess? Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I think, um, yeah, that makes sense. I think you just have to carve out exactly what that looks like very deliberately, right? You say you've gone through public education all your life. Public ed- education means 50 different things in 50 different states, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Uh, so you could say that on one level and someone else can say I went through public education and it is a world a world apart of what that looks like. But so, yeah, I don't I'm not saying I guess I, I guess I'm just kind of um, and this is this is advice for myself is, you know, be aware of that, um, that self gratifying pat on the back when it comes to things like this. It's, it's advice to myself that I think, um, you know, it's more me thinking aloud on that level. Uh, and you're right. You don't have to. You don't have to be a teacher or a funder of a char- of a school to to necessarily be the a, a stakeholder who cares. But you know that's where that's where like that deliberate information seeking makes a lot of sense if you're if you're a small business uh, you know owner. And even if you're not, we're all going to many of us are going to think about settling down in certain places and starting families and being part of communities again. And so you know. Back to your point, Sarah, like that, that there's a lot of deliberate stakeholding in that. Uh, and you could do a world of difference by thinking about that really intentionally about who your, you know, who your community is and how you interact with that. Thank you for listening to Effing Ethical. You can find us online at songandsarah.com or on Instagram at F-I-N-G underscore ethical. Let us know what you want to hear us talk about. And please rate us wherever you get your podcasts so more people can find us.